Hi, this is Jeff Scurry, producer of the Ad Lawyers podcast. We are recapping the top episodes of the first quarter of 2022. Today's episode is the third most popular, the webinar replay for privacy priorities for 2022, legal and tech developments to track and tackle. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us. I'm Elisa Hutnick, uh, head of Kelly Dry's Privacy Practice Group. And in a moment, I will introduce my wonderful colleagues and, and guest speaker. But first, I just wanted to A, welcome you. This is the first in our 2022 series on, on privacy with a real practical hook to it all. Um, I know for many of us, there is such a floodgate of, of privacy news and privacy information and, and compliance, uh, just areas, gray areas to get to figure out and track and apply. And so at least to start an ongoing dialogue um, and be a resource so that if there are certain just messy areas that you'd love for us to focus on in a future webinar, shoot us a note, let us know. We are glad to take that feedback in. As we go through, there's a Q&A on the side, so feel free to drop in questions. We will definitely leave, at, leave room at the end to, to ask questions and to get through the ones that are in the chat. And if we can fold them in as we go through, we will certainly do so. Uh, and we will um, be sharing a copy of the deck afterwards in an email, so you don't need to ask that question. It is coming to you. So with that, I'm going to get us started and introduce my wonderful panel. So I might start with our guest speaker first. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to give a little bit of background? Yeah. Hey, Elisa. Thanks. And thanks for having us. Uh, I'm with Catch, a data privacy, data governance solution. Um, we've built a number of solutions and kind of over the, over the course of our careers that really center around data management. And today, these days, we're putting our heads towards solving for privacy. Fabulous. Laura? Yeah, good afternoon. I'm Laura Van Druff. I'm a partner at Kelly Dry. Uh, before uh, coming to Kelly Dry, I was briefly at AT&T where I was an in-house subject matter expert on consumer protection. And I spent a decade of my career at the Federal Trade Commission, almost a decade, the Federal Trade Commission, where I enforced the Federal Trade Commission Act and other laws enforced by the commission uh, related to privacy and information security. And I'm um, excited to be joining you today. Great. Aaron. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Burstein, also a partner at Kelly Dry as part of the privacy and information security team. Like Laura, I spent um, part of my career at the FTC, although not quite as long as Laura did, but focused heavily on privacy issues while I was there. And uh, my practice at Kelly Dry involves um, a really broad range of privacy counseling um, transactional um, and uh, enforcement-related issues, and I'm just delighted to be part of the conversation today. Perfect. Well, let's let's get into it. Uh, just a bit of a roadmap on what we're going to cover, and I might even take a two-second, um, you know, veer, lent, zoom out with the lens that there are a lot of webinars that get into the nitty-gritty on the what, and we will do some of those. But to start off the year, I think the how is really, really important. And so we will talk about some of the developments and things to track, but a big part of the emphasis is gonna be just feedback and thoughts collectively from, from this group on 
how how to tackle all of the different things that are happening and to address them and really set some structure uh, for for tackling over this next year. So just to, the the type of emphasis that we want to make sure that we are we are focusing here. But we will talk about some of the key legal developments and things really to keep an eye open for over the course of this year. And then the the getting to it, how do you break it up into bite-sized pieces? And then we'll do some wrap-up thoughts. But first, I do have to just congratulate everyone for joining. It's January. We have a deadline of January 1st, 2023 for a, a decent part of the new laws. But if you are joining in on this webinar a year ahead, God bless you. Like you are a planner, you are getting, you know, pencils ready um, and organized. And I just, we applaud you for that. We will also tell you that when we were in these same shoes in CCPA, we definitely had some planners and we definitely had some people who reached out maybe a month before the deadline. So there's a lot more that you can do. And I think a lot more strategic um, emphasis that you can put to, to the task when you are working this far ahead. So, so kudos. So let's start. If we're talking about major big privacy developments, uh, <laughs> California sucks the oxygen out of the room in a lot of ways. Uh, with We've gone obviously from CCPA and we're moving to CPRA. And then we've got another California alphabet soup of the CPPA um, with a lot of activity that is yet to come. So Aaron, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first and maybe you could give us a little bit of an update on what's going on in California, what to make of it, what to look forward to. Um, tell us. Sure. Uh, I, I, th I think the, um, the marathon analogy is apt. I, I'd say that we... Um, at least in a marathon, you know how long the uh, the race is going to be. This might be a little bit like a marathon where you're not sure what the course is going to be while you're running it, but um, at least you can keep track of, of your mileage and keep track of the calendar. With that, I think it, it does make sense to, to think a little bit about where the map might change. And um, some of that will be determined by the California Privacy uh, Protection Agency, the CPPA, this new five-member board or agency at the state level um, in California. A, a couple of thoughts about the board in general. First is that it's, it's a new agency, and anytime you're standing up a new agency in the government, it takes time to get things rolling. So that is one factor. Another factor that cuts a little bit in the opposite direction is that the CCPA, as amended by the CPRA, you know, the expanded rulemaking duties uh, that are created and, and rulemaking requirements have an ambitious timeline. Um, July 1st, 2022 is the statutory deadline to issue final regulations. We're already near the end of January, so it doesn't uh, take a whole lot of math to figure out that whatever schedule the regulator in California follows, it's probably going to be pretty compressed and pretty tight once, um, once things start to roll. Just to set the scene a little bit, so far the CPPA has not officially taken over rulemaking authority in California. At the end of last year, last September, the CPPA did put out a, a, an invitation for comments on the um, uh, uh, several rulemaking areas uh, that gave some indication of what 
they might be interested in focusing on. Initially, um, you know, it included things like how to define significant risk to consumers, uh, privacy and security uh, as the basis for triggering audit and risk assessment requirements. Um, what does automated decision-making mean and how should the CPA define that term? All of that sort of remains to be seen exactly where the, um, where the board will go. The rulemaking, or excuse me, the initial comment period, a preliminary activity to a formal rulemaking process concluded in November. The CPPA did publish comments from uh, the commenters who responded to that. Those are all available on the CPPA's website and, um, you know, are well worth reading um, to get a, a sense of, of what various constituencies are interested in how they might um, uh, suggest that the CPPA uh, proceed with this very large task that lies ahead in terms of, of rulemaking. So that's, that's sort of where we're looking in terms of subject matter. In terms of timing, I think uh, we still have a lot of question marks. The CPPA does hold public meetings. Its last meeting was in the middle of November, and uh, it hasn't provided notice of a, a future meeting. So we're sort of waiting to see what the next move will be. Um, and, you know, that's a little bit of, of where things stand with the rulemaking process. So um, let, me, let me stop there and see if others on the panel would like to uh, add or chime in on anything on this point. Laura, maybe I could ask you, so we know that there are things happening. We know some of the topics that Essentially, the goalposts are likely to move somewhat, but we do know C CCPA, and we know a lot of people made their best efforts, but I don't know any of our clients that would say they are done. It's, you know, nothing left to do. So are there areas where companies can make some progress, you know, further refine the infrastructure, so to speak, to get ready for CPRA and what the CPPA will come out with? There's always room to do that. And we know, of course, as, as Aaron pointed out, that you know, we, there's areas where the CPPA is required to engage in rulemaking. And then we know um, both that the director um, of the CPPA who was hired by the board, Director Sultani, has personal interest in things like a global privacy control. And then the, the hints um, that that Aaron talked about there, um, those are there. We're, we're looking, you know, for areas where there could, you know, uh, nuggets of, of, of interest there. So there, there's, um, there's, there's room for for businesses wherever they sit, um, either as uh, as businesses or service providers, to um, look ahead to that to that rulemaking and and really. Um, Look at their service provider agreements um, and and think about um, future proofing their 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 businesses and papering their agreements, um, anticipating um, where the rulemaking will land. 
That's that's a really excellent point because the list of partners and actually just coming up with or firming up the process of new agreements coming in and new relationships and yeah. getting you know a bit of a funnel so that there is as as early as possible to get to weigh in and understand the relationship and understand the data flows and really be able to prioritize among those relationships. Right, it's one thing when it's your vanilla service provider versus. Um, all sorts of new and innovative sales and marketing uh, and ad tech support, which requires uh, a deeper analysis on that. Um, the, the other area that I know comes up a lot is really just the data map, understanding your data. Um, JJ, so less a legal question, but are you getting, are you seeing more questions from in-house counsel to, to do more data mapping and data discovery um, exploration? Yeah, I mean, almost all the time. So it seems to be a critical first step. And there's been some really interesting developments in the check around that. I know we used to handle data discovery and data mapping through manual surveys and other means. And that's, I think that's disappearing. It has to disappear. And so some of the trends we're seeing here, Lisa, are there's a trend towards using more technology and having it be connected directly to your data system. So you have an always on understanding of where that data is. The second big trend is, because you know, we know those type of data discovery tools have been available, but the, a really important trend is having that data discovery tool connected to your privacy management software. And I think that's critical. You know, this ability, Aaron, all, all the things you, you talked about around risk assessments and all the other things you need to do to be ready to be compliant. I think today we're seeing data discovery as such an integral part of that, that you have this data essentially at your fingertips. And it drives so much efficiency uh, with new laws. We're seeing something like 30 to 40% in terms of how much it costs to set up a new law and be compliant, saved with, with these kinds of methods. That makes a lot of sense because if I think back to CCPA or even pre-CCPA, you know, you'd, you'd get a request to do an estimate on a data map. Um, and often it was in relation to updating the privacy policy. And so we'd come up with a list of people to interview and we'd come up with a list of the systems and everything. And, and there's a role to that still, but everything was still so manual. And you do this multi-week effort to do that. And that's great. You get really helpful information once, once it's synthesized, but the business is not static. And so, you know, a year later, you're getting ready for a new law. And to have to think of, you know, how, estimate how many hours to do all of that effort over again. So there's a little bit of a symphony going on in the back of my head when I hear that we've, we're moving towards a better way to do that. That's that's really exciting. And Elisa, it's a great it's a great question there. I was just going to say, JJ, yeah. um, there's a good question in the chat, Elisa. Um, how how does how do we get management on board with uh, with data mapping? Because the the risk is amorphous. So how how do you get a commitment to to those resources? So I, I promise my panel, I did not pay somebody to put in that question in the Q&A, but um, whoever it is, you are reading my mind. And I promise you that is such an interest. I mean, it's such an important question. And so we will be devoting quality time to that question a little bit later. So that's my little teaser to get you to hang on for the second half of this presentation when we really get into making the case and getting on support and getting resources to align to support the effort. So I've got you, we will get to that. And then just before we move on, I want to make sure that another question um, is, is directed to, to Aaron, which is um, whether we have any insights on when the, the initial CPRA rules will be published. Uh, you know, the short answer is is no. I mean, we know the statutory calendar. We know that California requires a certain 
period of time to comment on proposed rules. There has to be time for the office of um, uh, uh, OAL. I forget how that decodes exactly, um, but you know, another agency within the California state government to review proposed rules, make sure they're consistent with the statute and the record. Um, you know, that all takes time, takes months of time. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one question is, do we know when they'll be published? The other is, do we know um, when they could conceivably become final? And, uh, you know, the answer is it will take several months to get to that point. So, um, you know, it is, uh, it, it is going to take some time. But unfortunately, we just don't know exactly when that's going to get rolling. We do have some really bite-sized pieces to help with the process. Um, so one, right, if you are not signed up to the um, both the CPPAs and the California AG CCPA, CPRA related press releases, those are really helpful. I think you should steal yourself that they really like to send out notices on Fridays if you're on the East Coast at the end of the day. That's a that's you know par for the course. Uh, and then sign up to, we'll get into it in terms of curating your, your information intake, but um, on our blog, I will tell you that we are pretty um, obsessive about tracking everything that's happening and then putting out some synthesis and some process about those developments. So then we can do the work for you and you can get a little bit of a, here's what's happening, here's the timeline as we get more updates. Um, and then the CPPA, the open meetings, right? So following them, those, if you can't hear them, then just at least some of the uh, published uh, documents that they put when there are updates and those are once a month. Okay, so with that, that's California. We will continue to weave California in our discussion, but we are gonna move a little bit around the country to Colorado. Um, so Laura, what is there to know about Colorado developments? Well, all eyes are on Colorado, um, the third state in the country to enact comprehensive uh, privacy legislation. Uh, the statute takes effect um, July 2023, and the rulemaking, in most respects, um, is required to conclude by July of 2025. Um, there's a few respects in which it has to wrap up earlier than that. The rulemaking hasn't officially um, opened, um, but we're seeing uh, indications that General Weiser has begun to lay the groundwork. So for example, on um, Friday this week, General Weiser is participating in a series of discussions. Um, that's what he's characterizing it as in Denver with the Wyoming Attorney General, uh, Bridget Hill, um, staff of both offices, his office and hers, and leaders from the private sector to discuss a number of subjects, including um, privacy resources, uh, data privacy and protection best practices, and developments in privacy regulation. Um, as practitioners in this space, we're watching to see the substantive areas where General Weiser may be providing additional direction uh, to controllers and processors in Colorado, similarly to what Aaron described in California. Uh, so for example, we were interested to learn more about the um, technical specifications for universal opt-outs. Um, that is, is, is something that his office is required um, to uh, set forth by July 1 of 2023, the opt-out for targeted advertising and sale of personal data. 
Um, we also might get clues as early as next week, if this week isn't early enough, when General Weiser will be hosting a number of attorneys general um, and industry leaders in the mountains of Colorado for the Conference of Western Attorney Attorneys General's Chairs Initiative. Can't say that three times fast. Um, that is just a, a, a conference with, with a number of AGs and industry leaders um, and, and a number of interesting uh, subjects are on the agenda. So General Weiser, as you'll learn if you attend our State Attorneys General webinar scheduled for tomorrow, is one of many AGs up for re-election. He is a young man with the potential for a long career ahead of him, but he's also had an interesting background that gave him many tools for, for this work, this privacy work, including in technology and in competition law. Um, Aaron, like you, as you know, General Weiser practiced at the Commerce Department and in the Justice Department. Um, I'm interested, uh, I know it's Elisa's job to ask the questions, but I'm gonna ask anyway, um, how those experiences could be uh, informing his work on privacy in Colorado. Sure, uh, and just briefly, um... Attorney General Weiser was was at the White House. I was at the Commerce oh, okay. Department. Uh, I know I know some feathers could could get ruffled there, but um, <laughs> but uh, no. I, um, Attorney General Weiser really had a, a broad portfolio that included privacy, data issues, innovation. Um, while he was serving in that role, I think that's significant. Uh, in in addition to his track record as a, a scholar on antitrust and telecom issues, as well as a now significant amount of experience as the chief law enforcement officer of the state of Colorado, um, I think that gives him a sophisticated understanding of privacy issues, a lot of historical depth. Um, technical sophistication, all of that, which I think will be helpful um, in the process going forward because, uh, you know, it, it um, should help guide the direction of Colorado's rulemaking in, in a way that, you know, takes into account the, the technical and, and business realities and complexity of this environment. So um, ho hopefully that background will um, come into play and, and steer the process in that direction in Colorado. Yeah, I will say this was a year ago, but I was on a panel with him um, and he was a very big advocate of saying that Colorado's approach was going to be principles-based, that they were not trying to overly prescribe how to do certain things. So a year later, let's, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But I think it is a really strong encouragement to participate in the comment process where there are just absurd or, you know, odd things that probably weren't intended or just to be mindful of things that here's a different way to do it, to be considerate of um, probably a good, good idea to get those voices in either through a trade association or directly. All right, moving our way around the state, we get to um, my state, Virginia, which is also your state, Laura's. Um, so third, third state, what, what's happening in Virginia when it comes to privacy law? Well, it's an interesting time to be a Virginia resident. The rest of the country is gearing up for the next election, but we're in transition. Um, we just inaugurated our new state leadership um, and Attorney General uh, Jason uh, Miaris has been in office only for a couple of weeks. He defeated the Democrat Mark Herring in November, an off-year election. That's how Virginia has its elections. It was something to get used to when I moved here more than 20 years ago, but 
I moved here 20 years ago, and so now I'm used to it. Um, so, so General Miaras, he campaigned on crime prevention and restoring um, a small business, Virginia, and he is implementing those campaign promises through restructuring his office and some high-profile criminal investigations. Um, and, and as a, a matter of optics, it, it seems like Virginia privacy may be a low priority, but we're not losing sight of that. Um, uh, of the Virginia privacy um, law, the, the, the CDPA, or of, of General um, uh, Miaris in, in that process. Uh, privacy presents the Attorney General and the new Republican majority in the General Assembly um, with opportunities to leverage the issue, um, to, to put some pressure on big tech and big business in Virginia. Um, and there could be less Machiavellian um, reasons to pursue amendments to the Virginia um, Consumer Data Protection Act. Also, uh, as practitioners in, in the space, we know that there's no rulemaking under the, the Virginia CDPA. And so the, the, it's necessary to the extent that there's, there's need for fixes, they need to be legislative need for fixes. And uh, um, the November report that came out about about that, um, there's discussion about, about whether, for example, the General Assembly should consider a right to cure um, how businesses can process deletion requests and the scope of um, the, the statute's uh, nonprofit exemption. So we're keeping an eye on all of that, as well as the Attorney General's role in enforcing the statute. And we'll have to wait to see what happens. So if I'm hearing, maybe the distilled version sounds like Focus on California, focus on Colorado, because those are still areas where there's still a lot to unfold. Um, but Virginia, it may change around the edges, but absent big political crosswinds to get strongly behind it, look at the letter of the law. Does it fit within your compliance infrastructure in terms of how you're approaching the other states or, or if you're taking a national approach? That's right. That's the way to prioritize it. Okay. So... Um, I read nighttime stories to my daughter, so Scary Squirrel immediately came to mind when we get the question of what else? Because we're not done. We're not done. Uh, I will point out, though, I did not put a slide on federal legislation on purpose because there's a lot of atmospherics, but I, I just I don't think we spend a lot of airtime on that because I don't think it's likely. We are watching the antitrust legislation, which in some ways tries to shoehorn some privacy impacting provisions. But if something really starts moving there, I promise you we'll do a webinar. But JJ, I know that you are talking to different analysts who all have their different predictions. What, what would you say we should expect in terms of state activity over the course of this year? Well, first of all, I love that we're focused on the stuff that's real today, right? Things we're gonna, we're gonna handle. And it's Data Privacy Week, so what's Data Privacy Week without a few predictions out there? But um, yeah, we're hearing, I mean, five or six states potentially um, releasing something this year. There's no real consensus on what, who, where those states are and which ones they are. And so I think the only thing we know for sure is that there's going to be new legislation, right? And then the way we, and to your point, I don't think federal, a federal piece of legislation will save us here. So I think the important thing is to remain flexible. And, you know, what we do, for example, at Catch is there are some commonalities uh, across the laws and you can, you can design infrastructure to help you with those commonalities so you can flex to whatever's coming. So, for example, you know, the privacy primitives 
we see them as the data processing purpose. There's always some kind of notion of what are you doing with, with data? And to Pia's point, who asked about how do I get funding for data mapping? I mean, you need to know where that sensitive and personal data is as a starting point for this. You know, the second primitive is around legal basis. What is your legal basis for processing? And it's not just opt-in and opt-out consent, but, but that as, as its broadest possible definition, right? It could include legitimate interests. So just any legal basis for processing that, as long as uh, your, your infrastructure for managing privacy can capture that and do something with it, I think that's important. And of course, you know, which, which rights will be available to citizens in those states, the ability to kind of flex across those and really design something that you can have templates for every state. You know, this next state is different in this particular way, but I already have my data processing purposes. I tweak the legal basis. I tweak the rights. Uh, and in addition to your, your risk assessments and other things you've got to do, it should be an easier easier way to adapt to new, new legislation. Right. I think that's such a good point because you could put it in different buckets. There's core things, right? There's what is externally facing, whether that's your communications about the privacy rights and how to exercise them or your privacy notices. And then there's the internal, uh, the operational data governance component. And you know you're going to have, there are requirements on that. Maybe they layer onto that or there's slight variations, but you are going to need to know what data you have, how you can tap into it, where you can find it. And then the part that I, you know, we always heard the the theoretical, do you have a data retention policy we could talk about? What are others doing? That's the big question of what is your end, you know, the end of life to data? What is the life cycle whole approach? Uh, such a big area that nobody really wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole other than a policy for a long time. And Lisa, it's such a good example of just kind of widening the aperture away from privacy and into some of these other concepts and you know, to tie it back to Pia's excellent question about how I get funding for data mapping, how do you not get funding for it? But also, you know, we're seeing CIO and CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, jumping into this because data mapping starts to form, you know, they're responsible for data infrastructure, so they want to help with privacy use cases. But while they're helping with privacy use cases, they're looking at data hygiene. They're looking at how much data exists across the organisation. Is it stale? Is it unused? Are there opportunities to reduce my footprint? which will reduce my risk and, and, of course, reduce your storage cost. You know, $700,000 per petabyte per year is current storage cost. If you, that can make a huge impact on the bottom line. And to your point, if there's a retention policy, the idea that you can automate when data needs to be deleted or looked at or moved becomes part of this. Pierce just said she doesn't have a CISO. <laughs> We'll get there. We'll get there. So there's an option for everything. Um, but I just think on that end of life point, I mean, one of the things that hygiene really does is it shines a really broad, big spotlight on all the places you had data that you didn't know. And we saw that early on with the data breach side, right? Like they had no idea. They weren't even using that data. And I know when you were at the FTC pursuing these cases on data security, that was a big part of it. Like then the company had so much mass exposure for data that didn't even have a, like a good business case to like even upset, you know, balance the risk on that. And I think when you do the data hygiene and you identify all of what we'll call like orphan sets of data around the business, well, that's something there's just, you can just eat much more easily get rid of and have a, an automated end to life purging of that data. And it's just going to be more and more important to do that. Keep the data you want and have really good reasons for it, but certainly don't keep the data that you don't need. I, I just 
will chime in on that and say that that sort of discipline and planning, um, I, I mean, just in the, in the breach example, makes such a huge difference um, when you actually go through an incident. Um, I think what we'll see with the expansion of, of um, potentially other state laws or, you know, as enforcement proceeds with the state laws we have, we'll see the same script repeated over and over again. And so having those building blocks, those primitives, as, uh, as JJ said, that's, uh, that's incredibly important. And do that if, even if you don't have a CISO, uh, there's California, for example, there's the private right of action for data breaches. And who knows what the new states, what kind of private rights of action. And so if you just think of, and I like to use the carrots and data utilization component for the art, for the, for making the business case, but some of the scary sides are, I've heard from every single client um, about premiums for their cyber insurance policies going up so significantly. And so where you can save money on those premiums, save exposure, um, every contract you enter with any partner where there's data sharing, there's indemnification, limitations, liability end up being one of the biggest areas. So how do you manage your risk and exposure and costs, direct costs in terms of premiums? And so much of that really does come down to data. I mean, you can, you can calculate it in hard dollar figures on what that could save for the company without a CISO. We had a great question. Someone asked about um, data subject requests coming from residents outside of California. We're hearing some are respecting all requests irrespective of jurisdiction. We're, we're absolutely hearing that as well. And I think we're going to talk about it later because it really is, it's not a regulatory thing. I mean, it is a regulatory thing, but really it's, a, it's your uh, perception with consumers, right? And I mean, you could get into trouble saying, well, we don't offer data subject requests rights to you because you don't live in California. Who wants that kind of brand image? And for that reason, and just kind of managing this consumer awareness around privacy, being able to address that outside of what the regulations specifically state, you know, we're seeing a lot of folks who want to be uh, for, very forward about trust and transparency in their data practices. And we're seeing the same thing that the, that the uh, person who asked the question is saying, that you want that flexibility to be able to do that if you want and offer that more broadly. I, I think... For CCPA, for a lot of companies, particularly those that you were U.S. only, you were just standing up a program for the first time. And so there was reluctance to make that a national program uh, because you're setting it up and you didn't want to have the other risk of making these privacy representations that you couldn't fulfill, which created you know, false advertising type issues. I think with these additional state laws and thinking about what does your privacy policy look like, what does your brand look like, the way that JJ said, um, it does start to support how do you have a national approach um, just operationally that becomes easier unless there's a good business case for some variations in you, how you apply, but at least as to the privacy rights, start having a, a more uniform approach to that where it makes sense. And so then that's when you get consumers outside of those states, you know, is it a discretionary thing or do you want to look to a, a point in time where you're going to, you are going to roll that program out nationally? So Lisa, we have a question in the chat asking if you can um, break down the the point about indemnification limitations on liability and cyber insurance premiums. Um, will carriers take that into account in your um, experience? So we're seeing a couple developments in that area. One, if you this was early on in cyber, but we definitely saw some carriers that were doing some of their fact due diligence on what are your 
data practices, how many data files. That was actually a question at that point. Um, but I have seen a move towards making, you know, really engaging with uh, via your broker with making those types of presentations. And then we've seen some other carriers looking to provide guarantees, you know, up to a certain amount um, for, for data breach exposure. So I think because of the way that the it really is ransomware over the pandemic that drove those premiums so high, there's got to be a reaction to it. And so it's it's an area that's moving. And I don't have, unfortunately, a silver bullet now. But I think where you can, A, be able to tell a really good story with proof um, that why your risks are not the same as everybody else, uh, that's certainly a ne- negotiation point. So absolutely. But two, there's where do you manage your risk via cyber insurance? And where do you manage your risk by your business practices and your contract terms? And really, you kind of have to take all of those cumulatively to have a business strategy. And so if it doesn't make it to the carrier policy, well, it certainly can make it to the substantive uh, practices. So I let everybody kind of look at this, um, my, our, our FTC cloud. of uh, This is what uh, wakes all of us on, on the right side of my screen up in the middle of the night because of all the different things that are going on. Uh, Laura, I'll, I'll start with you. What of, of some... There's a lot of activity in the FTC that may not be obvious to everybody. Um, could you give us a little bit of insight in terms of what you're looking at and what do you think the big focus on if you wear a privacy hat in-house? So I'll say, you know, having practiced at the FTC for nearly a decade and now you're focusing on this space for several years after that and anticipating that I'll do it for the rest of my career, I genuinely enjoy staying on top of all of it. Um, some days there's more to track than others. Um, and the word cloud is such a good illustration of, of what's happening right now. I mean, this is not what's happened over the course of the last five years or even what's happened over the course of the, you know, the last, uh, uh, the last year. This, this is what's happening now. Um, and so I, I do want to talk about a few things, um, but but first, just a, a little bit of, of table setting. Um, at, at present, the, the FTC only has four sitting commissioners. It's a, it's a commission of five. Um, there's just two Democrats and, and two Republicans. And until Alvaro Bedoya is confirmed, the commission can't accomplish much without achieving consensus or theoretically resorting to using months old, highly controversial so-called zombie votes um, from Rohit Chopra, who left the agency months ago to lead the CFPB. Um, Senate Commerce could um, uh, discharge from committee. Uh, Professor Bajoya, uh, together with Gigi Sohn for the FCC, as early as next week, but his confirmation still has uh, a a long um, road ahead. Not to say that he won't be confirmed, but it it is going to uh, potentially take a while. Um, We also have a changing FTC. Um, It's not the agency where I practiced. It's not the agency where Aaron practiced. and, and folks on, on this call, on this webinar, who um, are, have watched the FTC um, know that. Um, there's acrimony between the commissioners, a number of senior staff, not just in the Bureau of Consumer Protection, but also in the Bureau of Competition, have left. Um, the chair is surrounding herself with people who are not necessarily career FTC staff, and that's different from years past. And I, for one, am interested to see uh, what the result is when uh, the Senate confirms Professor Bedoya, assuming that the Senate does um, confirm him. 
So um, what I'm interested to talk about, um, the, the timeline um, for the privacy rulemaking that we're hearing about. There's a lot of breathless talk about uh, the privacy rulemaking, what it means for federal privacy. Um, I, I, I don't... I, I, I don't put a lot of stock in that. I think it would be very interesting to the conversation. I think it could um, it could take up a lot of air in the room, um, but I think it's going to take a really long time. And as a consequence, I think that what we've just talked about, about uh, California, about, about uh, Colorado, about Virginia, there was a question in the chat about New York. There, there could be action in other states. You know, we're, we may talk about that too. Um, that is what companies need to be thinking about because the federal uh, federal rulemaking at the FTC is going to take a very long time. Um, there's a number of steps that are required by statute that cannot be bypassed, including um, notice to Congress, findings of fact, the ability to seek a judicial re uh, review in a circuit court. Um, and if the FTC were to short circuit any of those steps, it would it would risk the, the, the process. Um, earlier this week, interestingly, the Supreme Court granted certiorari in a case regarding um, the district court's ability to hear challenges to FTC administrative cases. So it's not exactly on point, but we're watching that case closely and its holding could be relevant to the so-called MAGMOS rulemaking process. Um, another issue on the word cloud um, that, um, well, I guess what, 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 is, what is relevant to, to everyone here that I, I think is worth, worthy of talking about, Alisa, is, is how companies can manage FTC-related risk um, because there's so many issues here. How can any company keep track of all of them? Um, it's our job to keep track of all of them, of course. Um, but uh, we're keeping track of, of them and, and, and having experienced counsel can help. But, but what, what we counsel um, our clients is to, to, to stay focused on fundamentals. Um, and key among that, and this is helpful in the states too, is um, keeping your, your arms around your privacy representations, um, ensuring that you don't have a, a UDAP or Section 5 uh, exposure. Just the question is, you know, are, are you keeping your privacy promises? Um, so, and then thinking about your exposure under sector-specific laws uh, that the FTC enforces, like COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act and the telemarketing sales rule. Um, telemarketing and, and children, those are perennial areas of interest to the FTC, regardless of who's in charge. Right, and those come with civil penalties, which make them all that much more attractive for the FTC at this time. <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, I think I would just maybe add on to some of the points that you mentioned. I mean, do you have super sensitive, are you in a super sensitive sector, right? Do you have health fitness yeah. data? We know that that's an area that the agency is also really interested in. They are using the term surveillance, creepy surveillance for, for most algorithmic decision-making or advertising uh, online practices. So I think just at least staying on top of those developments, yep. reading our blog, if you don't want to read the, the settlements that do start getting announced and, and what those represent are also good, just indicators on your overall risk management. We can have a whole other webinar on FTC developments, but we're just giving you a taste of it today. Okay, I've got... Aaron, I've got two commissioners up here, the chair and Commissioner Wilson. What, what do you think are the most important things that listeners need to know about a lot of the debate happening between the D's and the R's right now? You know, I, 
I think we down into process and substance. Um, on the substance side, um, the the FTC chair, Chair Khan, who we've pictured here, and Commissioner Wilson, uh, who has spoken about privacy issues, have um, both, they have strong and broad interests in privacy and data use issues, but they come at them from very different angles, and those differences could be significant um, depending on when the commission gets filled up and how it proceeds, um, both with rulemaking and just to give a thumbnail of how I see Chair Khan's views, as a lot of you know, uh, she is an antitrust expert. That is where she focused uh, earlier as a Columbia Law professor. She, I think, brings a uh, different perspective or set of perspectives to privacy issues and through things like the comment she submitted to the CFPB on its um, platform payments inquiry, um, as well as that she's made, as well as the staffing decisions that you mentioned, Elisa. Um, I think Terracon is looking at the competitive and privacy dimensions of data use and the role that certain companies might play as gatekeepers to data or ways that they could leverage access to data for competitive advantage. Um, that isn't to say that that she's not interested in more traditional types of privacy issues. I think it's an and um, that, that gets applied to all of those interests. <clears throat> Commissioner Wilson has been a strong proponent of federal privacy legislation, um, is deeply interested in privacy, but I think that her um, focus is more on traditional as well as having Congress set the rules of the road. Um, I think in, in her public statements, she is consistently very concerned about the FTC taking the rulemaking path, um, uh, whether it's under a surveillance uh, um, economics sort of rulemaking, broader privacy rules um, as distinct from something like COPPA, where the FTC has specific um, notice and comment rulemaking authority. So <clears throat> those are some of the um, the differences in outlook um, and substantive views that I think we're seeing at the top of, of the FTC at the moment. And you know, I think we'll we'll see those continue to come to the surface in the way that investigations are um, uh, handled and resolved within the commission as well as at the broader policy level. I think the dissent um, for for the folks who want some spicy FTC reading, uh, I would highly encourage uh, when you see a privacy enforcement come out to to take a look on if there are defenses. Um, but to get to the the often tail wagging the dog, uh, law moves slowly, industry moves a lot more quickly. Uh, JJ, I might start with you here. Kind of, what are you hearing in terms of how just some of the big players are moving along and driving some changes that absolutely have perhaps even stronger ripple effects when it comes to privacy? It's a confusing landscape for sure, right? And so the the it feels to me like we're caught in the middle of this of this battle with big, between big tech and and their control over data. Now, privacy is a layer on top of that. We're seeing more and more media stories about you know, potentially the weaponization of privacy uh, as an example. And that's rising, that's, that's raising consumer awareness of privacy. And you know, there was a question 
in the chat about what's your take on dealing with third-party service providers that purport to handle privacy requests for consumers. And I think the, I think the question is asking, you know, there's these automated solutions out there that are just sending out data subject requests on, on behalf of consumers. And how do you deal with that? You know, th this kind of media activity, these kind of moves by big tech is just going to have, it's just going to increase that. We're, we're absolutely seeing kind of exponential increases in DSRs. Automated solutions just contribute to that. I, I think it just ups the game for brands who need to think about privacy and obviously address compliance uh, for that, but also realize that there's brand value here for them. And there's brand value in good consumer experiences around privacy and there's brand value in trust and transparency. And in fact, at Catch, we're, we're trying to put the numbers to that. We've, got, we've commissioned some studies this year to see how much trust and transparency around data practices actually translates into ROI. So um, I'd love to share that with, with the crew when that's ready. But it's all the more reason why privacy should be a team sport, right? It should involve the CMO. It should involve consumer experience um, teams. It should involve the CIO and CISOs. And I know we're going to talk about that later, but I think it's it's a confusing landscape. People are wrestling, jostling for position here, and you know, it feels like we're stuck in the middle. But I, I mean, what do you guys think? Well, I think there, there's there's a, a good question that expands this discussion a little bit about us on um, tech-based requirements uh, like uh, app tracking transparency or the recently announced um, account deletion requirements from Apple and how those interact with some state law uh, requirements. You know, I think th those things are um, inseparable in my mind and, and uh some of the changes that platforms have made, I think, are clearly in response to regulatory pressure in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, I think my overall um, perspective on, you know, we're, we're, um, things are going in one direction. Um, you know, first-party data is here on this slide. Um, I, th I think it, 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 there's a huge emphasis and effort um, among companies that, have first-party data to um, use it in ways that that um, may make them less dependent on third parties, um, and you know there are all sorts of trade-offs to make in in doing that. You know, at the same time, we have seen some of the large uh, platforms that offer advertising services um, develop solutions or provide services under terms that, you know, make them a CCPA service provider. Um, when the CCPA was uh, on, on the course to becoming effective at the beginning of 2020, you know, that went on in tandem with it. It took a while for things to shake out. Um, I think we've hit a point where we, there's there's a, a plateau or some stability in what the platform's positions are, um, but we're already starting to look toward, you know, changes under the CPRA and uh, changes to the definition of service provider. How will that affect some of this positioning? So I think that's sort of the next step in this um, uh, interaction or, or tethering between state law developments and, and the, the terms that platforms offer. Yeah, if, if anything, it was a forcing effect, I think, to talk about 
this is not just a legal issue. You are going to get less data. I mean, that will happen. And so what do you do then? You know, A, whether you're you're the platform and you have a lot of data. And so then it's how do you, we're seeing a lot of these platforms turning into um, advertising systems. So the advertising becoming a big part of their business now and measurement. Um, but if you're a small, medium business, it's how do you then get reach? How do you expand? And, and having to, as the sands are shifting under you, like, come up with more strategies. And that does require the stakeholder discussion about knowing A, exactly what data you have, getting much more sophisticated and having privacy and product and sales, having really good ongoing conversations. You know, there's this move to subscriptions. There's stake a lot of different stakeholders. We've got IAB um, because we're involved in a lot of those working groups, but that it's such a helpful resource to, to tap into where a lot of these trend lines are moving and what are some new opportunities to then bring back to the business uh, to make sure that those conversations continue outside of a legal sphere and into the business sphere, which then helps give you a lot more insights to be able to make the ROI case, right? Because it's just, it goes hand in hand. I love that, Elisa. It's, it's like this, it, it's this awareness that data that you need for growth and compliance with privacy laws don't have to be mutually exclusive. In fact, they can coexist. And, I mean, we see the IAB on there. It feels like there needs to be some kind of standards, right? In a similar way that the industry addressed programmatic advertising, when advertising moved from manual and became more programmatic, there needs to be that kind of solution for, for privacy. So just these back and forths of privacy choices across these complex e ecosystems, just a way to understand and translate those across all these very different platforms. And you know what's encouraging about, about that, even though we see competing standards here potentially, HTTP and the standards for, for the internet today evolved in a very similar way. Right. And the standards were very different. They came from different perspectives, but they evolved. We worked through them, worked through them, and we ended up in a place where now, you know, there's standards for communication for advertising and the internet. And I think there'll be standards for communication for privacy choices as well. I agree with that. I think I will just say I don't. The trend line is moving one way. You have to have multiple strategies when it comes to how you use your data. That there is going to be, you know a push for where you don't need personal data and you can use some type of anonymous data, cohort, uh, aggregate data, great, but you're probably never going to go fully in that boat by any means. There's, you know, privacy means data, personal data and using it and just figuring out how do you use it in ways that are, are more modernized to deal with the current environment and where things are going. All right, so I do want to make sure that we get um, into some of the, the next couple slides and big points, but uh, Forest from the Trees, are there, I don't know, kind of a, the two-second call-outs of what have we not covered that are just so central to, to make sure that we're aware of? Laura, thoughts? Well, you and JJ touched on this, and, and Aaron, for that matter, um, in a slightly different context, but um, but the alignment of privacy and security. So you've mapped your data and you know what you have, but within the organization, it's also important that the privacy and security teams are talking to each other so that there is a alignment in terms of strategy. Um, because when organizations are siloed, there can be a disconnect. 
Um, and uh, knowing what you have is is part is is a, is a critical part of the solution. But making sure um, that the the question that we were addressing um, early on about you know my kingdom for a, a CISO um, that if you don't have a CISO that you know whoever's in charge of um, security in your organization is aligned with whoever's in charge of privacy in your organization because otherwise um, if you manage your privacy risks but not your security risks or you manage your security risks but not your privacy risks or you manage them differently, um, then you you have you've created new risk in your organization. I think it's the point that that JJ mentioned before, like privacy really just has to be integrated throughout the business. There's no excuse for that not to, and that's work. It worked to go uh, build allies, build allies throughout throughout the company and, and get it to where it's relevant to each of your stakeholders. Um, so I do think that kind of on the how, there's some really important things like you can grade yourself on how you did with CCPA and maybe your aim there was a B minus and it was, you know, Band-Aid, get yourself across the finish line. What is your intention for how you want to get to 2023? And and really, what does that look like? I think that that's really important. Uh, JJ and I were talking earlier and would your business team grade saying our goal is to get a B minus or a C plus? And the answer is no. And so I think it's part of how do you bring that conversation together? The business is A plus, right? That is, there's no excuse for that. So how does the privacy integration and the use cases, the data utilization, the changes, how does that fit into supporting that business use case uh, to make sure that those objectives happen and really figuring out, okay, what are the heaviest, the biggest, the most expensive things? How do we get there? And um, there are a lot of resources that speak to the ROI point to help you make that case internally so that if you don't have the budget, you can get the budget um, and or at least help support um, to, to contribute. Maybe it doesn't come out of legal budget. In fact, often we're seeing it does not come out of legal budget. Uh, so I know, JJ, we're, we have at the end there's definitely a bunch more resources coming, including some numbers. So like the survey you mentioned that Catch is going to be doing, I think, really important for, for folks to keep on tap with those kinds of resources and developments. Absolutely. You know, there's nothing like somebody else's budget, right? And so we're seeing more of this come out of come out of CIO and CISO's budgets. The average legal budget for this, I mean, last I looked, was $2.8 million. But you're looking at hundred grand for most companies or a million bucks for 20% of companies for every new piece of legislation. And the DSRs that we were talking about, you know, Gartner, who write great reports on this, average it out to about $1,500 per data subject request to comply with that. We're just dealing with this unscalable issue and we just can't, I mean, there isn't enough people to throw at it. I mean, we, just, we have to solve it. And, and it's ROI on budgets today, but it's ROI on budgets tomorrow as well. And that ROI isn't just on legal budget. It's you're saving IT time, you're saving, you know, in, in consumer experience. And also, I think there's, there's an opportunity in privacy. And that's what we'll try to articulate uh, in, this, in this study, that there's opportunity in being more uh, open and transparent about data practices. And so maybe with closing thoughts, I'm going to skip right to, um, we've got definitely different tech tools than we had before. And so Catch, you have a bunch of resources coming. They don't look like they did at the beginning of CCPA. I will just say that it is worth getting to know more of. Um, but I think finally, it's it's really, you have to be reasonable and you have to figure out where do you have the most risk 
um, if you don't address it or if you don't address it in certain ways and work backwards from that and at least fold some of that talk track into how do you make the case upwards to C-suite level or whoever is managing the budget level um, and how do you push it down and bring bring on and make champions within the business to support your 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 push for more privacy. So final, we're at the we're at the top of the hour, but I think maybe what I will say is there clearly needs to be more webinars. So if you have suggestions for other topics, we're going to do our next one later February. We'll have the date in the follow-up email. But if there's other topics that you would like us to cover, just please send us a note. We're, we're happy to, to consider. With that, thank you, everyone. I really appreciate all the comments and discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.